in verse 7, and Alyssa Tompkins is going to read for us this morning. The more they increase, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity, and it shall be like people like sheep. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord, to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles, for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of mountains and burn offerings on the hills, under oak, poplar, and terebinth, because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore, and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes, and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. And a people without understanding will come to ruin. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to Beth-Avon, and swear not as the Lord lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Father, help us this morning to receive from your word what you have for us, to equip us, to change us, Give us the ability to live for your glory. But Lord, where there are things that you want to remove from us, we loosen our grip on those things even now as we begin to listen. That you would take away what is taking up space where you are intended to reign and take up space in our hearts. Help us, Lord, not only to give up but to receive from you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, my daughter told me that she was listening intently because I had asked for permission to share a story. And and many of you who know me know that I, I want to try to run past my family when it is that I'm going to use them in an illustration. And so I had asked for permission because it actually happened Saturday night as we were watching the Gator game together. And I realized that my daughter is very intent and and wanting to see who it is that's on the screen. And so I found out that she has a crush on the backup quarterback for the Florida Gators during the Florida Gator game. And I was was curious, I was like, this is this new level for like our family where Ella kind of emerges from her room and comes and joins us to watch Gator football games. And I was curious as to how that had happened, but we were enjoying the time as a family. And so now some weeks into the college football season, it has been revealed why she's so interested in the Florida Gators. And I asked for permission to share that because I thought that it went well uh, with part of our sermon last week on my people perish for their lack of knowledge because in the midst of explaining to me why he is the greatest, uh, she w- the, the backup quarterback for the Gators, uh, why he's the greatest, which again, oxymoron there. So she said, it's okay, Dad. I just wanted you to know who my future husband is. And, and, I want, and so she listened intently and then was disappointed when I didn't share the story. So I'm starting off with that 
because it does remind us that in the midst of that, she says to me, Dad, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And, and I just said, oh, the people perish for their lack of knowledge, right? Like, that's not what that verse means. Uh, so welcome to my home. That's what happens in our living room on Saturday afternoons and evenings. Uh, we misquote scripture to each other. And um, no, that's not, that's not how that works. You know, it, it's funny because I would imagine that looks like so many other families here in this room. It looks like so many other families here in this room. There's, there's these wonderful moments of fellowship together, and then some time goes on, and then it gets revealed what's really going on. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves in a place where we have this kind of knowledge of Scripture. We have these, these phrases that have references in God's Word in our mind, and yet we don't understand how to apply them to our life. I imagine that's like any living room represented in this room today or any living room that someone may be sitting in right now on our live stream and it's fun to laugh at those moments but it reveals something about us doesn't it it reveals something about us and and last week that was primarily the message that we were seeing in Hosea is that the people perish for a lack of knowledge a lack of understanding a lack of acknowledgement of who God is and his ways What a terrible way to die, especially when he reveals so much for us in his word. And then we come to a passage like today, and and you read it, and this would be one of those passages that if you read this in your morning devotions, it would be like, what am I supposed to do with this? What part of this am I supposed to meditate on? What is it that I should just be kind of turning over and over in my mind? How do I even apply this? The language here in Hosea, it's prophetic language to the people of Israel, specifically the northern kingdom of Israel. It's a prophetic language to them, but it is messy. You know, there, there's something that we talk about in sermon preparation, and that is we want to write for clarity. There's a, there's a part of what we're trying to do in, in, in sharpening the message that we write for clarity. And, and Hosea didn't understand that concept in this passage, it seems to me. Also, if this is clarity, what was it like in his head? What are we supposed to do with this? We're back to whoredom language. I mean, that's just uncomfortable in the bottomless earth. But he's speaking it to a, a nation. And he's speaking it for a reason. So, so what are we to reason from it today? What is it that we're to receive from it today? Well, we start with the understanding that a lack of knowledge or acknowledgement of God is kind of the, the main, in the courtroom of the, of the Almighty, the main kind of indictment against us as his people is that there is a lack of knowledge or acknowledgement of who God is. And then he begins to kind of provide some of the evidence that goes along with that. And this, this morning you may notice that the, the title of the message is Leaders and prosperity, and idols, oh my. And it's really based on that famous scene from the Wizard of Oz. And if you've never seen it, you've probably heard this phrase of lions and tigers and bears, oh my. And they go into the the forest, into the wood as they're making their way to Oz. And all of a sudden they meet the lion right off the bat. 
I mean, you can hear the music begin underneath it as if there's a song that's about to break loose. And, and before they even can get into the song, they are met with the lion that they are so afraid of. And as the people of God, as we are walking through life, there are dangers and toils and snares, as the song Amazing Grace says in its third verse. There are dangers and toils and snares that we will face in this life. And how is it that we are supposed to have a knowledge of who God is and acknowledge who he is in the midst of those circumstances? That's what Hosea is after today in us. That's what he's after in us today. And this is one of those times where we can acknowledge a laziness on our own part at times. Maybe this is just me. But this can be one of those passages that when we come to it, we kind of take the approach of pass. Pass. That's too hard. That's too hard. That's too much. I I don't want to dig into that and, and really understand what it is I'll trust that God has something for, t- for me tomorrow morning in my daily reading time. And we can see how easily we give in to what we'll see at the close of our passage today is the spirit of the age. The spirit of the age. But, but God has something very specifically that he wants to speak to us as a church today. So let's lean into that. What does he begin with? Well, he begins with leaders in the church. Leaders in the nation. There's an opportunism that is is happening in the nation. And leaders are a part of it. The people are a part of it. If we actually take a little bit of a step back, we realize that that leaders are mentioned in verse 9 of what Alyssa read for us this morning. But if we look back to even our passage Last week, we'll see, starting in verse 4, yet let no one contend, let no one accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. Well, that must mean we're all off the hook. He's talking to the priests. He goes on. You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble. Okay, I'm not a prophet. I'm not a priest. I'm not a king. I'm off the hook. The prophet shall also stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. I don't get that part. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Well, if that's the point he was leading to, but it's not really for me, well then, I, maybe I should just pray for our leaders. Well, yeah, that's a great thing to do. Please actually pray for your leaders. That's not his point. Because they have rejected God. That's his point. They have rejected a knowledge of him. And here, all of a sudden, we're confronted with that, what I just called a moment ago, the spirit of the age that says, pass. In in those moments in our devotions where we say, pass, what are we doing? We are rejecting knowledge of God. We are rejecting a knowledge of God. And so there's this call, yes, to pray for our leaders, yes, to be engaged with what is going on in the world around us, more than that, not to give in to the spirit of the age and not to reject the knowledge that God so plainly puts in front of us. James Montgomery Boyce says this, that godlessness is not incompatible with religion. In fact, it goes along with it nicely. It goes along with it nicely. See, when, when the knowledge of the true God is 
refuse, then false gods are going to move in and take its place. God's right to say it. See, true relationship with God is replaced with false religion. Let me just say that again. True relationship with God is replaced by false religion. So godlessness is replaced with superstition. All of a sudden, it just becomes about what was the, what was the outcome of, of what I did. I mean, there's almost that joke, right? Like when something happens and there's a blessing in your life and somebody may just say kind of off the cuff, well, somebody had their devotions this morning. Superstition. It can easily creep in. You're like, how do we get here from leaders? Well, leaders were benefiting from Israel's broken covenant with God. And so what happens in the midst of this is they begin to kind of literally feed off of, let's just look at it real quick. Verse 7, the more they increase, the more they sinned against me, I will change their glory into shame. Verse 8, they feed on the sin of my people. Now, what is, what is he saying there? What is Hosea kind of confronting the nation with? What, what is God confronting us with today? Leaders in the church were benefiting from broken covenant with God. The, the increase, the prosperity that the people were facing, the, the ways that they were bringing these sacrifices in, the priests would be a part of being able to partake of the ritual sacrifice. And so the more fatted the calf, the more fatted the lamb, the better the priests ate. So what did they do? They began to kind of turn a blind eye to the sin of the people. They began to turn a blind eye to the sin of the people. And here they are in this role where they are supposed to be the ones who help to mediate between God and man for people, and yet they are participating in the sin of the nation. They're not confronting the nation with it. Now maybe there's a a particular priest or prophet in mind. Uh, Hosea is not clear on that. He is speaking to those who are leading in the northern kingdom. And when you see the word mother there, he's not changing the direction. That's kind of a metaphor for the leadership in the land, the institutions that existed there. In other words, the priests and prophets are a mother to the people, meaning that they are leading, they are guiding, they are training them in who they should worship and how it is that they should worship. But they're neglecting that role. That's what the language of Hosea begins to help us to understand. Here, the leadership of Israel is supposed to be helping to instruct the people and and actually inform and form their worldview. But even the leaders have rejected their knowledge of God. And so God has this contention with them. So my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. I mean, what, what chance is there for those who are commoners in, in Israel to know orthodox theology, to, to have an, an accurate understanding of who God was if their spiritual leaders have rejected the knowledge of God? The leaders have become a part of the ruin of the people. And God's response is to reject not just the people, but the leaders themselves. The nation of Israel is in a dire state. And, you know, we should, we should note, in the midst of this kind of messy language, it's not immediately clear where Hosea is shifting back and forth from directing his comments to the leaders or to the people or vice versa. What is plain is this. 
the accusations that God has against his people for their broken covenants, it affects everything. They, they see it at a, at a national level. They see it in creation as we learned last week. It's in the leaders, but it's narrowing in and it's becoming very specific to each of our hearts and each of us as individuals, even today, just as it was in Hosea's day. I mean, think about just the, the shallow reasons that, Hosea, that Gomer left Hosea. If we look back to chapter 2, verse 5, we see this. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. How might we summarize why it is that she left? She left for things and for pleasure. That's why she gave up her covenant. What might be the things or the pleasure that we would be tempted by today ourselves? Maybe we could sum it up with these four things, food or sex or wealth or even just religion, meaning just going through the motions. I mean, there's so much that is provided for us today. We almost are at this place where it's like, what else could we possibly want for? And God is saying to us that in the midst of our lives, if they're in their proper proportion, if they're a part of his will for us, if they are immersed in holiness, there's nothing wrong with those things. But when they get out of proportion, when, when they are not used for his glory, oh, the dangers that come with that. Think about food. Our culture can rush to gluttony and waste. Think about sex. There's, there's this almost this, this race more and more toward kinky forms of sex. Kink has become a category not for hushed conversation, but for celebration in the streets. Money. No, no amount ever seems to be enough. I mean, there used to be a day where, where financial advisors would say to you, do you have a number in mind? And think about how, for almost all of us, I mean, I find myself, as I'm, I'm doing some different planning, where I'm just like, this number just keeps getting bigger. I don't know what to do with this. There used to be a day where it was like, have a number in mind, have a date in mind, have all these things in mind, and all of a sudden our minds are just ever increasing with the size of that number. And let's be honest, that has nothing to do with inflation. It has everything to do with comfort and with want for more. And God is saying, be careful in the midst of that. He is calling our hearts to account. What about religion? Well, it's a, it's a buffet of religious thoughts. If you don't like this religious thought, well, start your own. Make up your own. You don't like what God's saying here? Reject it. Accept something else. You're a wuss. That won't stand before the throne of a holy God someday. That won't stand. I mean, just think about how, this, how sin is so pervasive and it leads to such a downward spiral. What, what, do I, what do I mean by that? The people are given over into their sin, Romans tells us. They are given up to their own sin. In other words, they become their own worst enemy in their sin. How do they do that? Well, we talked about it just a moment ago with sex. I don't need to slap a PG-13 label on this, but I think we can all acknowledge in the same way that money seems like it will never be enough, 
sexual sin can do the same to us. More than that, it's, it's, it's almost like, well, if I just experience that, then I'll never long for anything else. That is a lie. Don't believe that lie. Don't let your broken marriage or your broken life end up in my office because of that lie. Sin is ever pervasive and leads to a downward spot. What do I mean by that? That desire will be, pla- will be replaced by another desire. And, and here's where we have to be mindful of our own hearts. Those desires being generated in us, they are a curse of sin. It's important for us to think deeply here and think rightly here because this can be something that saves us from going down a road that we cannot recover from ourselves. Yes, there is redemption. Yes, there is forgiveness for those who turn and repent. We're going to look at repentance a bit more next week, but let's let this land here in our hearts today as a safeguard for us as individuals. Sin is pervasive, and it is a downward spiral. When Romans talks about them being given up to their passions, when 1 Corinthians talk about them being given over to themselves, when these passages talk about these things, that is actually a part of the curse of sin. It will never be enough. It will never be enough. We can acknowledge this on gluttony, except that there are television shows that celebrate that and actually make money off of that, off of gluttony. There there are increased forms of kink being explained and brought into the culture as if it's something that should be accepted and not rejected. And we realize this is actually the effects of sin. And so it begins at the individual level. It starts to affect homes. It starts to affect communities. But then there is a national devastation that can lead from that. Church. Let's recognize not only what's going on in our nation, but what may be going on in our own heart this morning. Even as I'm talking about these things, you may understand so much further than I'm even explaining in this sermon. Turn and repent from those ways that you are giving over to enslavement to sin going to lead to shame and to judgment we see in verses 7 and 18 and 19 it's going to lead to judgment as we see in verses 9 and 14 so shame and judgment aren't exactly things that we get up in the morning like i would like to put on shame and judgment today and yet we pursue these things as if there is no consequence for no consequence for our actions i mean this is a sobering word to leaders in the church i take it as such I think about those who are elders and deacons in our church and pastoral ministry, those community group leaders and ministry team leaders, those who are even just natural-born leaders whose influence can't help but draw others along with them. And I I hear this as as a warning to those who are leaders, but I can't help but escape this question as well. Who are you following? Who are you following, church? Do they make allowances for these types of things? Are are sin and kink and food and greed, are they the things that they make allowances for? Who are you following? And I'm not just talking about me. 
I'm talking about the pundits that might be on television. I'm talking about the articles that you read, the ones who seem to agree and be able to articulate everything that you think in your own heart. Who are you following? Because my appeal to you today, church, is not follow me. It's to hear the words of Christ that say follow him. Who are you following, church? We have to measure and we have to weigh these things so carefully and so rightly, and God's word supplies what we need in those moments. So leadership is a danger. So is prosperity. Verse 7 says this, The more they increase, look at it with me, the more they increase, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into what? Into shame. So here we don't get up every morning thinking, I, I'd like to put on shame today. And yet God says, I'm going to change the things that they glory in and I'm going to change it to shame. Let's, let's start off with a temptation that we should acknowledge. Let's be careful not to narrow our understanding of prosperity to be about money. Perhaps you're a guest here today. Perhaps you've been coming for just a few weeks and you think, of course, here it is. It's the money sermon. I've been waiting for this. Let me caution you. Prosperity is not just about money. But if that's your kind of knee-jerk reaction in this moment, Chris is about to talk about money, and there's this knee-jerk reaction of, I don't need to hear this from the church. Let me acknowledge, there, there's been devastating abuses in the church kind of universal over the years with money there has been but that knee-jerk reaction might say more about you and what's going on in your heart related to money than it does about what god's word has to say about money but this passage is about more than money see in, in the northern kingdom where they were there was not only economic opportunity because of where they were positioned in the land, and they had the opportunity even with trade and commerce with, with lands like in Phoenicia and some of the neighboring lands. They had all of this economic opportunity. There was, there was an opportunity to increase their wealth and increase their holdings. Yes, that was a part of it, but there were also technological advances of the day. There was a prosperity in labor that there was a productivity that was coming out of that. Their tools were getting better. Their, their, their ability to produce more was increasing. And in the midst of that increase, the more that they increased, what came along with it? The more that they sinned. Prosperity is a danger. So what are some of the ways that we face a, a danger of prosperity today? I would say that it's in health. It's in tools and technologies for laborers. It's in the economic opportunities. Even in security of being, housing and food, food and different things like that. I'm not here to say that everybody has all of these categories perfectly, but I am here to say that there is a prosperity that we live in that we should acknowledge as a danger, that we don't see sin increase because of the prosperity increasing as well. I'm not talking to the nation. I'm not talking to Florida or Castleberry talking to each person gathered here today with Metro Life Church. We should be aware of the dangers of prosperity. In verse 4-8, they feed on the sin of my people. Now I referenced that just a moment ago. 
talking about the priest. And in that context, you can see that kind of used two different ways, right? There's the sin offering that we talked about just a moment ago. But what are the leaders doing? They are turning a blind eye to the sin of the people, the transgressions of the people. The reason they have to make the sin offering in the first place. The reason that they have to make the sin offering in the first place. This is where they are missing the mark. They are, as we might say, they are failing the test of prosperity. I've prayed for the test of prosperity. Without acknowledging that I'm living in it. God help us. God help us to understand rightly your word. God help us to walk rightly in your ways. God help us. See, what, whatever we might go through in life that we are quote-unquote deprived of, whether that's a, a real deprivation or whether that's something that we just perceive as deprivation, whatever we are deprived of in this life, let us acknowledge this, that God can use all of those things together for the good of my heart and my mind. Whatever we walk through where there is deprivation can actually be a divine blessing. What do you have a sense of being deprived of today in your prosperous state that is actually your divine blessing? See, God wants to remind his people that he alone is the true provider for them. He alone is the true provider. 1 Timothy 6.10 actually acknowledges that if there's a false sense of autonomy that, 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 that kind of accompanies prosperity, and that's actually at the very root of the love of money. Jesus, in his encounter with the rich young ruler, the one who chooses wealth over riches in God's kingdom, Jesus would say this about him, well, it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Prosperity is something that we should be mindful of as a danger to our faith. What else? Idols are something that is a danger. Leaders, prosperity, and idols. Oh my. My people, it says in verse 12, look at it with me. My people inquire of a piece of wood and their walking staffs gives them oracles. This isn't sarcasm. This isn't written in the sarcastic font in Hebrew. A font that I desire greatly. It's true. I actually walked the building just earlier trying to find a random piece of wood because that's how asinine what, what the, the prophet is saying to the people. My people inquire of a piece of wood. So I, so I just picture, just picture with me just a moment. You are walking through Home Depot and you ask the two by four, two by four, what should I do? It, it's funny, it is funny. But it reveals something, doesn't it? It reveals that we so often look to the creation rather than creator. If I ask a two by four in, in Home Depot today about a two by four in my house that was built in 1962, they don't even match up measurement-wise. 
A two-by-four today is not a true two-by-four. It's actually less than. And so here we see that even in the midst of the things that we might worship in idol, they will degradate over time. They become less than over time. And yet God never becomes less than. He never runs out of his grace. He never runs out of his mercy. He never runs out of his righteousness or his holiness. He is always complete. He's never going to be less than. There will never be a day where we look at that and just go, these don't measure up, do they? God will always measure up to himself. But that's what the people are inquiring of. A piece of wood, a carving. Something to be representative of something else. Something that has taken the place of God in their heart. Their worship is misdirected. Their worship is misdirected. And then they, we go through this section. They sacrifice on the top of mountains, burn offerings, and, and there's this, this kind of creation thought about what it is, the, the, the chapel that they're worshiping in in creation. Oh, there's shady trees, there's all of these things. And then it goes into this very interesting section where it repeats the word whore or whoredom nine different times. Now we should remember that 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 phrase in the book of Hosea, it, it's a startling phrase. But what it's intended to help draw our attention to is a spiritual adultery, a spiritual infidelity to the one true God. It's drawing our attention to that, but it's talking about the people playing that part. Playing that part. Though you, verse 15, though you play the whore, O Israel... Let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal or go up to Beth-Avon and swear not as the Lord lives. So here they're talking about Gilgal, this place of victory in, in, the, in, in the history of Israel. He's saying don't go to that place and degradate it by worshiping idols there where the one true God proved himself to be faithful to you. Don't go to Beth Avon where it's saying it's a it's a house of it's a house, excuse me, of wickedness or a house of idolatry. And what there is is this play on words there of Bethel, the house of God. Don't rename the things of God for your idols, is what he's saying to the people of Israel. And we may realize that verse 12 begins kind of a bracket at the end, at the close of chapter 4. Where is it bracketed? Verse 12 says this, My people inquire of a priest of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles, for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they left their God to play the whore. Startling language, to be sure. Verse 19 is the close of the bracket. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. We might refer to this as the spirit of the age. Have you ever heard that phrase? Oh, it's the spirit of the age. That's what Hosea is addressing in Israel. The spirit of the age. If I were to summarize this section, I might say it like this. Don't play with sin. Don't play with sin. That's his point here. Don't play with sin. Don't Harbor those thoughts. Don't be infatuated with it. Don't flirt with it. Don't fiddle-fart around with it. That one's for my dad. Don't allow it in the church. Don't allow it in your homes or your own hearts. Don't play with sin. 
Scripture tells us what to do with sin. Flee it. Don't play with sin. Why do I say that as it relates to the spirit of the age? Because playing with sin is the foundation of so much in our society today. Maybe a stretch. Been wrestling with this one all week. Allow me some grace to allow the Holy Spirit to speak through me, not not my words at this moment. The spirit of the age. I think there is something inherently healthy about what is often called emotional intelligence. I think there's something inherently healthy about a right understanding of your own emotions and how to interact with them. I think there's something healthy about that. I think there's something unhealthy about making that an idol. Here's what I mean by that. We are called in the church to speak the truth and love to one another. But if I'm so emotionally healthy that all I ever know is the moments where I'm not ready to receive truth, except for that maybe like hour in the month that I'm, I, I can receive now. Do you have truth to speak to me? No? Okay. I'm not trying to make fun of anybody. I'm, I'm trying to acknowledge something that, that might be the spirit of the age in the church where we become so emotionally healthy about ourselves that we actually begin to reject the, the systems and the, the families and, and the people and the friends around us who are, are there as mirrors to help us grow and to change. In other words, if you're so emotionally healthy that you can never receive from a brother or sister who has your best at heart, whether they do it perfectly or not, if you can never receive from a brother or sister, you might be making an idol of your emotional health. I want an emotionally healthy church who rejects the spirit of the age. Let's finish the sentence, church, together. Let's finish that sentence together. I want an emotionally healthy church because our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and His righteousness. I'm not saying reject emotional health. I'm saying embrace the good that God has given you in one another. And reject the spirit of the age. I understand that any time that I begin to speak about things like that, it, I pray that you hear my heart. If you have questions about what I just said, please let me know. It's definitely not in my notes. I hope you hear my heart in that more than you hear some kind of extreme rejection of things that I do believe can be good. But if good as defined by the world, doesn't lead to Christ-likeness. It's not truly good, church. It's not truly good. See, Hosea has a lot to say to our individual hearts, doesn't he? I mean, you, you might be at this place where you just go, leaders and prosperity and, and idols, and, and you're at that place similar to what Dorothy was. Oh my, oh my, what are we supposed to do? I mean, it's not like this passage leaves us a ton of hope. Oh, look, here's Jesus in the midst of this. It's, for, it's in verse 20. There's no verse 20 of, of this passage today, okay? It's what it can kind of feel like where it's just like, are we left hopeless then? 
What leaders should we look to? Where, where do we find true prosperity? What, 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 about, what identifies the idols? Christ is all through this passage. Christ is the one that we should follow. And he's the one that told us to flee sin. He's the perfect leader. He's the perfect prophet free from sin. Christ is all over this passage. Christ is the one who tells us, I've not called you to be prosperous in this age. Oh, but you have a prosperous future. Oh, but you have a prosperous future for those who are in me. I've not called you to be prosperous in this age. I've called you to be a disciple, to be a follower. Christ is the one that says, if anything is higher than me, it's an idol. Including your own thoughts and your own ways, the things that you long for in your own heart. I'm not just talking about pieces of wood anymore. I'm talking about the things that we erect in our own heart or in our own mind that cast a shadow on the cross rather than the cross casting a shadow on everything about us. Christ is all over this passage today. So in the midst of hitting the bottom of a very slippery slope and crying out, oh my, what are we to do? We see in chapter 4, verse 19, at the very end, this very slight flash of a ray of hope and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. See, there will come a day when all of these leaders, when all of these idols, when the prosperity even of the age will not buy you into heaven, and they will all come to ruin and fail. Even the sacrifices won't be enough because of the things in our own hearts that have just taken over. Oh, but there is one true sacrifice that we can look to. Here's that flash of hope. I don't know why I just have the green flash from Pirates of the Caribbean going through my head right now. I'm just getting that out there to unburden my soul. Psalm 89. If you have your Bible, just turn over there with me. It's a long psalm. We're not going to read the whole thing. I just want to look at verses 14 through 18. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you, it says. Psalm 89, verse 15 is where I am now. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in light of your face, who exalt your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor our horn is exalted, for our shield belongs to the Lord. the Holy One of Israel. Hosea chapter 4 sets a very bold contrast between the peace of the knowledge and acknowledgement of God and the devastation of stubbornness in our own individual choice. But how does God respond to that? Does He just say, leave it? Leave them. Leave my creation. No, no, he, he promised to never leave us or forsake us. He's drawing our attention to these dangers. He's drawing our attention to these snares for our faith. His doing so is intended to keep us clear of having to experience more of the brokenness that they can bring into our lives. It's as if God is saying to us today, love you why, why is it that you would rebel against me 
I mean, one of the questions that we wrestle with when we're putting sermons together like this, especially from the Old Testament or in these types of texts, is what kind of God says this to his people? It's a God who loves us as his people. And we kind of wrestle with this question of what kind of people need to hear this? It's a people who have not fully and truly received the love of God as our Father. It's a people who don't fully understand the sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf. Are there broken pieces of your life? Give them to him and and let him exchange those for the peace that only he can provide. Whatever it is that he gives to you, whatever it is that he takes away from you, all of them have the same purpose to draw you in closer communion and fellowship and abiding with him. All of these words that we love to try to describe God with, he reveals both in his perfection and holiness, through his perfect law, and through the sacrifice of his son. He reveals himself completely through all of those things. He says, I'm using these things, what I provide or what I withhold, to draw you closer to me. Is it leaders? Is it prosperity? Is it idols in the spirit of the age? What is God after in you this morning? I told the band not to play yet. I think I'm going to do it. I haven't been able to get the song Amazing Grace out of my head this week. So we're just going to sing it a cappella. Michael, hey buddy, can you pull up the lyrics to Amazing Grace? We're just going to sing this together. May this Holy Spirit minister to you and reveal to you what it is that he's after. Even if it's just a renewed sense of being drawn close to the heart of God. That he would rescue you from yourself. He would rescue you from the depths of sin that so easily pervade the spirit of this age. Amazing grace. How dangers. Church, let's stand together and sing. Through many 
there. 